Virginia man facing 23rd DUI. I read a little bit about that for you. I'm just going to spare you his name and spare him from mentioning his name. Mr. Smith told the Virginia police officer he had not been drinking just before recording a .28 on a breathalyzer, prompting what will be at least his 23rd prosecution for drunk driving according to court records. Mr. Smith's lengthy drunk driving record spans decades according to bond paperwork filed in Virginia Beach courts. Somehow because of clerical errors and the fact that the arrests have occurred over many years and involving many different states and jurisdictions, Smith has been able to string these violations along. I'm surprised he's still alive, prosecution said adding that most hardcore drunk drivers end up dead or in prison for fatal accidents. The system let him down and more importantly let us down as the people who are on the road. Considering the thousands of dollars in fines, and this is the part you underline, considering the thousands of dollars in fines, all the wasted years spent incarcerated and the misery he's inflicted on himself and on others, it's very surprising to see him continue the same pattern of behavior over and over again. Some people just never learn. Well, reminds me of Israel in the time of the judges, as you have been learning with me these past few weeks, Israel's really slow to learn. We're in the period of the judges from the death of Joshua to the beginning, 400 years, to the beginning of the monarchy with Samuel, Saul, David, and Solomon. And so during those 400 years, it's really the darkest history uh, for Israel because of their disobedience. And they're always getting into trouble with the Lord. They are always, as it were, if I'm going to continue this analogy, in the Lord's courtroom uh, with a different kind of DUI, not driving under the influence, but disobeying under the influence of pagan neighbors, pagan neighbors who they were supposed to drive out. They were supposed to have zero tolerance for the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Gergesites, all of these uh, pagan peoples uh, through whom moral compromise would come. And he warned them of this. And they disobeyed. They worshipped their uh, pagan gods and goddesses. And, and through uh, disobedience aroused the uh, disciplinary action of the Lord. And so the Lord will find them guilty this fifth time because we're now in the fifth cycle of sin and uh, the fifth uh, judge for us to consider tonight. The Lord will sentence them here in Judges 6 to seven years uh, under the chastisement of the very people they were so enamored by and the things that they tolerated so easily. And so the passing of years now has blurred the memories of the painful consequences of their disobedience that they just suffered last chapter under the uh, King Jabin and his 900 iron chariots and all of the uh, Canaanites. And uh, they have forgotten now the wonderful deliverance God had brought through Deborah, Barak, and ja Jael, jail, right? as we saw last week. So things were better for a while, but as soon as the judges died, their disobedience waned as well, or their obedience, I should say, and brought disobedience. Again, verse 1. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them, he sold them over, he he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, the Malachites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza, the same Gaza 
that's in the news all the time, even today, and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count the men and their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. So, note takers, Roman numeral number one, repeat offenders. It's been 43 years since Judges 1, and this is the fifth cycle. Things are going well, and then they get a little lax because they're so blessed, and they don't feel their need or their dependence on God, and so they kind of push that envelope. And then they fall into disobedience, and they do all the things they're not supposed to be doing because they're out of fellowship with him. And then God gives them over in a disciplinary action, in a redemptive way, to really to bring them back. Not so much just punitive action, but a chastisement as a loving father. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said, The Lord does not permit his children to sin successfully. He is not a permissive parent. Proverbs 3, and then quoted by the writer to the Hebrews, chapter 12, says, My son, my daughter, don't despise the Lord's discipline and don't resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son or daughter he delights in. So really... The writer to Hebrews, which is probably the Apostle Paul, is saying, you know, when you feel the paddle come down and you know it's the Lord because you did something that uh, wasn't pleasing in his sight, to see that as a, a loving uh, gesture on his part. Because as Warren Wiersbe says, God doesn't sit idly by and watch his children destroy themselves. He cares about it. It would be way worse for you to be doing your own thing and sinning and then have no consequences and have God not intervene because perhaps he's not uh, wanting to intervene because there's no relationship there. He says, those who belong to me, he disciplines. And so uh, Israel should be taking heart that God doesn't just let them go uh, off the cliff in a merry way. So the Lord's instrument of choice to uh, bring them back to their senses and to relationship with him so that they might be blessed and be able to actually enjoy the land flowing with milk and honey instead of living in caves like a bunch of animals. And sin will always rob you of uh, enjoying God's blessing. And here they are, been given a land of, of promise of milk and honey out of the slave pits of Egypt in the mud and the muck and the mire. And he says, man, wait till you see this place. You're going to love what I've got for you. And because they can't do one little thing, obey, obey, not disobey, but to obey, just to do one thing. And you could enjoy it, but no, because you're disobeying, you're going to have to live in fear and in frustration and oppression so that you can't even enjoy the, the milk and honey. You're up in a cave there. Makeshift shelters and dens because of our disobedience. Living like animals, so riding the bike path along um, Highway 12. There are people who live in the bushes like animals. And there's always a paper bag. And there's always a beer bottle this big. And there's always this motion going on. And they, every time I drive by, it's like, hey, hey, no, can you not connect this and this with living under a tree in the bushes under a bridge? This is the same principle here. Amen? I'll just break up the silence a little bit here. And so living like animals, it's terrible. They've got these Midianites now breathing down their backs. And uh, it's clear that the camel is now a secret weapon. Uh, and I love this quote. It is clear that the use of this angular and imposing beast struck terror in the hearts of the Israelites. And so uh, here's what's going on at harvest time. 
This was like a once a year oppression. They'd come swooping in and destroy everything. So they would plant their crops and the Amalekites and the Midianites would come in and say, thank you very much for all your hard work and we're taking it all. And they took it all, they had nothing to eat. Not only did they take everything and stripped it bare like a bunch of locusts on the land, nothing left after all of that work. They'd kill the sheep and the livestock as well. They left them nothing. And instead of not crying out in seven weeks or seven days or seven hours, these guys, these are Jews, man. They can go seven years like that and say, you know what? We're still going to try to make it worth work with our Ashtoreth poles and our altars to Baal and our little shrine to Je Jehovah as well. But it takes them seven years, and they finally cry out. Haggai chapter 1, verse 9 says, You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why? Declares the Lord Almighty, because you're busy doing your own thing. You're busy doing your own thing. I'm going to get your attention. You think I'm going to bless you? So you think, oh, the hand of the Lord is with me. I must be doing okay. He says, no. You expect it a lot. You bring it home. You're all about you. So I just go, and there it goes. Holes in your pockets, says the Lord. Now, so after humbling them in frustration, making them crazy for seven years, finally they cry out. And as one writer said, prayer is the last resort instead of their first resource. Verses 7 through 10, God now is going to answer them. When the Israelites cry out to the Lord because of Midian, verse 8, he sent them a prophet who said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I snatched you from the power of Egypt and from the hand of your oppressors. I drove them before you and gave, them, gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not listened to me. So Roman numeral number two, told you so. Now, the Lord is really the only one who can get away with that phrase, told you so. That's one of the, the, the benefits of being the Lord. He can say things like that, and nobody's going to say, oh, you, you've got a bad attitude. No. The Lord is just saying, look, I'm going to send this unnamed prophet to you to bring some clarity, because you've been out of fellowship with me. You haven't been in the word. You've been doing your own thing. In fact, you've been doing their thing in the world with Asherah and Baal. So you're a little crazy. You don't really know what's going on right now. So uh, I know you're crying out, but you're crying out because you're in pain and you're frustrated. But you need to know what the real problem is. Well, you need to be crying out, Lord, change my heart. Fix what's wrong inside of me. Don't just cry out to say, oh, owie, fix the problem out here. He's going to say, no, first I've got to make sure you know exactly what just went on here what the situation is. So he says, number one, he says, uh, you need to remember the love of God. Did I not come to you while you were in the mud and mire of Egypt, powerless? Am I not the one who pursued you and pulled you out of that mud pit? I loved you then. I love you now. Number two, I want you to remember the power of God. I rescued, verse 9, I rescued you out of worse things than this. Remember what I've taken you through? I haven't lost my power. I was able then, and I'm able now. Number three, the promises of God. I drove them out like I told you I would, and I gave you this land, and you're in the land now. I kept my promise then. I will keep my promise now. And the warning of God. And I told you, don't worship their gods. The day you worship their gods, it will be what? Thorns in your eyes. Remember? Thorn in your side. Remember the bear trap I had up there? The snare to your feet. And a whip on your back. Those are all quotes. Four things he said. 
you're so infatuated with this thing, and this thing is also infatuated with you. It's a fatal attraction. And by tolerating it and not uh, putting it to death, it, will, it has the potential of putting you to death and cause you a lot of pain at the same time. So he says, but you ignored me. So what is he saying? He's saying, guess what? You're in this situation because of you. You didn't listen to me. That's the problem. It's you. It's not the camels. It's not the, the marauding meanies that come in. It's not the crop failures. It's not that they killed all your sheep. Oh, Lord, here's the problem. These are the bad guys, and they took all the sheep. He says, let me send a prophet to tell you what the real problem is. That's a symptom. Symptom, 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 symptom. Now let me tell you about the disease you need to be crying out about. It's called your disobedience. You did not listen to me. It's right there. So first the prophet's got to come in. Before he can fix anything, you've got to know, okay, this is what happened. I own it. I'm turning from that, and I'm crying about that. And now God says, I can work with that. He's the great physician. You know, you all have heard these stories a lot. 2001, I had this mean cough. It just would not go away. And it was asthmatic, and I had never had asthma. And then I started to get so tired, I'd come home from work at 3 o'clock, and I'd go straight to bed. And Barb was saying, you have to go to the doctor, the cough and the fatigue. I said, I'm fine. I just work really hard. And I, I, I put it off for so long. Then I go to the doctor and said, can you do something about this cough and this tired problem? And he said, yeah, we can. As soon as we fix the problem of the cancer that's causing it, Hodgkin's lymphoma, a tumor that was pressing against my lung and causing the cough. No, 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 just fix the cough. That's how I'm just interested in the cough. I'm tired. Can you give me a little five-hour energy thing? You know, it'll be all over. Just like pop it and I push a lot of energy. Push, I don't know where that came from. I'm not responsible for those words. Yeah. No. <laughs> Moving on. We think, if only I could make ends meet better, or if only my boss would be nicer to me, or things would go better at work, or a door of opportunity would open, if only my marriage could improve. Sometimes those things have no uh, connection to disobedience, they just there are lots of things that happen out there. But you have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's able to tell you, uh, perhaps there's something out of kilt with me and you that's causing this problem. What does he use to get your attention? He's got a thousand ways to get mine. And I know that voice. What does he use for you? 11 through 16, the angel of the Lord. It's time to meet the Shaphat in Hebrew, the judge, which in Hebrew really is the rescuer who's coming to uh, the aid of the Israelites. The angel of the Lord, Jesus, really, it's the second person of the Godhead before he incarnated a human body at Bethlehem. It's Jesus, came and sat down under the oak in not Oprah, but Ophrah. <laughs> a very big difference there <laughs> that belonged to Joash where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But Sir Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us in the hand of Midian. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? 
But Lord Gideon asked, how could I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. The Lord said, I will be with you, and you will strike down all the Midianites together. All right, Roman, Roman numeral number three, the weak things. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. The Lord Jesus here calling Gideon, and kind of a humorous little greeting of sorts, is what up, mighty warrior, the Lord is with you. In verse 15, we find out that he's of the weakest clan and the weakest man in that clan. And... Uh, I didn't try to even be funny there, but I appreciate the shout out there, Amanda and Cedric, not to embarrass anybody. So we've got, um, we've got the weakest man. I just picture the Lord coming to him and saying, hey, mighty warrior, and Gideon turning around and looking behind him and saying, oh, who are you talking to? You, everybody knows that. Uh, we've got a reputation for not being really uh, militarily uh, strong. And me, of all people, you know, so I just picture this guy. He's not really a fighter. You know, he's a lover, not a fighter. You know, whatever. He likes to read books and stuff. And here, <laughs> here he is, and he says, mighty warrior. And he's like, uh, I don't think so. And he says, the Lord is with you. And so not only is this guy uh, weak, all right? But he's got an attitude. He really does have an attitude. Well, the Lord is coming to him and saying, this is what I see in you. You're a mighty warrior, because with me, you can be and you will become this thing. And this, my friend, is really God's MO. This is the way God is. He picks people that he can use and shine through, and then all the glory goes to him. He picks a guy like Moses who can't uh, speak. He's got a speech impediment. And he says, you're going to be a prophet for me. You know, he, he uses somebody like Simon. He sees Simon coming. He says, you know what? You're the rock. And everybody who knew how uh, impulsive and inconsistent and flighty that Peter could be, everybody said, you're nicknaming him Rocky. I don't think so, because the Lord looks at us in what we can become in him, what he can transform us into, and that's his business. That's what he does. He looks at Abraham, and he says, uh, Abraham, I'm Abram, I'm changing your name from exalted father to father of the multitudes, Abraham. Uh, that's a joke because I am old, my wife is barren, and I don't have any children, and it's bad enough that I'm exalted father, and now you're going to make me exalted father of the multitudes. Why? Because he looks at you and he says, be holy, for I am holy. And he says to you, you, you are going to lead people to the Lord, or or, or Bible scholar, or by, you know, all of these things, he can look at you and say uh, things that aren't in the present reality because he's not finished with you. And it's just a beautiful thing. And so he says that. He says, this is who you could become. And then, then Mr. Gideon gets a little attitude. If the Lord was with us, uh, why has this all happened to us? You know, of course, it's all God's fault. It always is. Gideon, let me give you three guesses why this is all happening. Seriously? You're seriously looking at God and saying, if God really did love me, why did this happen to me? Are you kidding me? Gideon, he's not even going to answer Gideon. Do you notice that? He just goes on and just like rolls his eyes and goes, okay, you know what? Spare me the pity party. You know exactly why this is happening. We don't even have to address it. Can we move forward now? You know the truth. Where are the wonders? God has abandoned us. What is he saying to Jesus' face? You're responsible for this. That's crazy. Proverbs 19, verse 3. A man's own folly ruins his life, yet his heart rages 
against the Lord. If I were the Lord, <laughs> and he started saying, you know, if God was with us, hello, look at this, all right? I'm in this little wine press when I should be threshing wheat in an open area on a big stone pavement with the oxen hauling big logs and going over it and, and crushing uh, uh, that weed and getting the heart of the kernel out and then winnowing that. I'm stuck with this little bit of a rock little cutout of a wine press. And I'm using that, living in a cave. How can you say the Lord is with us? Look what God did to us. So he just says, you know what, let's just move forward. You know, call to me and I will answer you, Jeremiah 33, 3. But whine to me in unbelief and sarcasm and you'll get silence on the line. He just is silent. He just like, okay, whatever. Uh, let's move forward. I want you to go forward, he says in verse 14. Go with what you have. I'm sending you right? Save Israel. I'll be with you. So he doesn't need more self-confidence. He needs less self-confidence, and he needs more God-confidence. That's very important. Now, if the Lord had inspired the little children's book, the little train that could, it would be the little train that couldn't all right, and instead of saying, I think I can, I think I can, the train would be saying, and I kid you not, the train should be saying biblically, I think I can't. I know I can't. Jesus, if you think I'm being over extreme here, Jesus is the problem. Chapter 15 of John, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Zero. That little train needs to be saying, I know I can't. I know I can't. I know I can't. But I know God can. I know we can. I know I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. And yeah, pow. Yes, now. But until you figure out that no, you can't, and exactly, Gideon, how am I going to be able to be a warrior? How can I do anything? Moses said the same thing. How can I do this? Jeremiah said it. Isaiah said it. Everybody in the Bible says, I am inadequate, I cannot do it. Whenever I go to somebody like a deacon or an elder and I ask them to consider and pray about things, they always say, usually, nine times out of ten, I can't, I can't, I don't have the ability, I don't know that, I just can't. It's like, bingo, perfect, you're supposed to be saying that. My adequacy and competency does not come from me, it comes from the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. It is the Lord God who makes us competent for the task at hand. And so he just has to be convinced, you know, God helps those who can't help themselves. Um, somebody, we were standing next to somebody at a sushi bar, and she said, oh, you're a pastor. And like I tell people all the time, because it says in the Bible, and she said, quoted something, and it was so not in the Bible. And I said, no, that's not in the Bible. She says, are you sure? I said, I've spent 32 years studying it. Uh, no, it's not in the Bible. And I said, do you think God helps those who helps themselves is in the Bible? She said, yes, of course. And I said, no, that's not in there either. Uh, yeah, so it's not in there. I appreciate the thought behind it, like we don't just pray and just say, you know, now you do this. I understand the thought, but actually it's better to say that God helps those who can understand that they cannot do it. That's why we have a Savior. If we could do it, we wouldn't need to be rescued. Amen? 17 to 24, Gideon replies, so the Lord just ignores his pity party and just says, okay, I want you to go and do this thing. And he says, uh, now, if now I found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that it's really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering, set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Gideon went in, prepared a young goat, and from an, an ephah of flour, 
He made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so with the tip of the staff that was in his hand. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread and bam, fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Oh, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And that was a big Jewish no-no. You could die. You know, everybody knew that. Moses already said that, you know, so he's afraid he's going to die. Verse 23, but the Lord said to him, peace, shalom, do not be afraid. You're not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it the Lord is peace. Jehovah shalom. To this day, it stands there, right there in that place, Ophrah. All right, number three, uh, a request for reassurance, uh, Am I dreaming? Sometimes, you know, God's dealings with us are very supernatural. And in big situations, it's nice to have some assurance and some confirmation. And verse 17, Gideon looks for some confirmation. It's a life and death situation. So he wants to know he's doing the right thing. Lord, is this really you? You know, honestly, I think that we need to confirm things that are important, big turns and of events in our lives. Um, I'd like to be sure this is coming from you, a big move that may cost a lot of money or uh, affect somebody's life in a big way or your family. I mean, many things are not in the Bible to tell us yes or no, take the deal or no, buy the house or not. Is this the right house? Is this the right girl? Is this the right guy? It doesn't say thou shalt marry this person. Now, we have some principles to go, and there's lots of ways to determine God's will. And so he just wants to know, you know, did I have some bad uh, pizza last night? Or, you know, is this really you talking? So I like this a lot. <laughs> I like this a lot. Gideon says, look at what he does. He says, let me do something for you. I want, I want you to confirm this to me, but I'm going to offer you something. Hold on here. I'm going to make an offering. And it's a, a communal kind of sacrifice kind of meal. But I, I really like in seeking confirmation, he makes a move in service to the Lord. He doesn't just say, you know, I want you to do something here. But he says, no, no I want to go and give something in this time of scarcity. He, he brings 35 pounds of uh, flour in this bread, and he takes a whole animal, and he's saying, I just want you and me to hang out here, and I want you to convince me I want to see, but I'm going to make a move of giving uh, to you here in verse 19, and how will you receive this? And let's continue talking over a meal. And the Lord directs him, put the meal here, this is how God consumes food. He says, this is kind of my implement here. And boom, he touches it and fire consumes it and smoke goes up. And the Lord just kind of disappears in a glorious way. There are fireworks. And you know what? I want to say this. When you're seeking God's will in a big uh, matter, I think you should expect a little bit of a wow I think you can expect a little bit of a wow story. Let me tell you, and I'm not telling you now, but let me tell you how we knew it was time to start a church. I've got a wow story. I've got a wow story about how I knew Barb was the one. I do. I just have, and she has a wow story. Now, we don't always have to have the wow story because some people don't really need a wow story. They're a lot smarter than the rest of us, and they just get it, you know. But I think that it's okay to say, I, I need a little fireworks here, and God provides that for him. And um, I mean, especially this first time, there's nothing wrong with what he's doing. So God gives him what he's looking for. Gideon says, great, it is God. Now he's going to kill me. 
and he gets kind of scared. Verse 22, you can't see God and live. Genesis 16, 13, Genesis 32, Exodus 20. But the Lord says, Shalom, it's me, Jesus. You cannot see the Father in the fullness of the Father's glory and live. Nobody will see that. I am the manifest image, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, of the invisible God. You can see me. So moving on, big chunk now. So that same night, the Lord said to him, uh, okay, first thing I want you to do before you go save Israel, take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old, tear down your father's altar to Baal, and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height. Using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down, offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took 10 of his servants and did as the Lord told him. But because he was afraid of his family and the men of the town, he did it at night rather than in the daytime. In the morning, when the guys of the town got up, there was Baal's altar demolished with the Asherah pole beside it, cut down, and the second bull sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The men of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he's broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash replied to the hostile crowd around him that this is the dad now, dad of Gideon. Are you going to plead Baal's cause? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him shall be put to death by morning. If Baal really is a god, he can defend himself when someone breaks down his altar. So that day they called Gideon Jarub Baal, saying, let Baal contend with him because he's broken down Baal's altar. Okay, Roman numeral number four. First things first, get the false gods out of your backyard. You're not going to do anything until you go home and set things right at home. And so apparently, Joash, dad, is like one of the temple priests. One of the temple priests, the most vile, disgusting, unspeakable things from a pulpit that they would do at these shrines with sexuality and sensuality. It was horrible. Baal and Ashtoreth. So he says, you know, number one, you've got some work at home to do. Remember the guys who got delivered from demonization? In Mark chapter 5, he says, Lord, I will follow you anywhere. And the Lord looked at him and he said, I want you to go home and tell your friends and family all the wonders that God has done for you and the mercy he has shown you. Go home. Get things in order there. It's important before the big thing comes. Take uh, care of business. And so there's a shrine to Baal and Asherah in Pop's backyard, verse 26. And Gideon wonders, you know, why has this all happened to us? Oh, about the temple in my backyard uh, where there's a little shrine prostitution going on in my own yard. I wonder why God is upset. Yeah, never mind. Okay, so he says, tear it down, cut up the totem pole, use it as fuel of firewood, offer his prize bull that he was saving for the goddess of sex. Take that and offer it to the Lord on a proper altar. Now, this is a big deal to tell this guy who's not much of a fighter. You know, go tear down your father's satellite dish. All right, just rip it down, stamp all over it, and pull the cable plug out, tear up all his Playboy books there. Sorry, that's what it is. It's what it is, but worse. But worse. So he says, go in and do that. And so, you know what? I would rather have this place packed out with 500 people on a Sunday and preach the gospel. That, to me, isn't as big of a challenge than to sit me at Thanksgiving with my family and have to talk and share the gospel. 
It's very difficult. This is a big deal. So I, I think, wow, it's great. It takes 10 guys. It's a little fray. They do it by night, you know, and he takes care of business. And the guys get up and notice how devoted they are. Oh, they're at, they're at Monday morning devotions there at the backyard shrine. They're not at church. Oh, but they're at the shrine because you know what's going on at the shrine. But they notice right away they're there in the morning at the shrine. And they say, who did this? Now, 10 servants helped. So it's kind of hard to keep that a secret. And they find out a little digging, verse 29, and they find out, you know who it is? It's Joash's kid. And the Jews say, Jews, men who have covenanted with Yahweh say, let's kill him because he's taken away our porn, man. He's cut down our religion. Jews are saying, we're going to stone your kid, even though it says in Deuteronomy, we should be stoning you and tearing down the altar. It was death penalty for what they had done. And now they want to kill the kid who said, you know what, maybe we shouldn't be worshiping Asherah and Baal. Maybe we should be worshiping the God who saved us and brought us out of Egypt. But no, they want to kill him. So Joash, dad, has a little change of heart. And he says, excuse me, so you're all pleading for Baal now? He says, L listen, guys, if Baal is real, then let's see him take care of my boy. And if my boy is fine and goes on to lead us in victory, then we're just going to follow him. Let Baal, Mr. God, fight his own battles. And so they nicknamed him. You know, one who contends against Baal. And they call him Jerubal. That's his nickname now. Can I go off on a little bit of a bunny trail about the need to defend a false god? They need to defend a god who cannot defend himself. Therefore, when you burn the Quran, and there's no God to take care of that honor, you must fight his battle for him. You must say, we will kill you for that. When you burn a Bible, we're grieved. When you blaspheme the name of our Lord and Jesus, when you draw cartoons that are blasphemy about Jesus, we're grieved. But we're, we're for free speech and we aren't going to kill you. You know why? Because we have a sense that God can fight his own battles. We stand up for God. We're into apologetics. We'll defend the gospel. But you know what? We don't have to defend his name. We don't need to defend him. We don't need to say, we're going to kill you now. We don't sharpen our swords and cut your heads off for doing that. Why? Because we already know, we've read the end. We know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. He says, I'm a big God, I'm going to take care of this. But when you have a false God who can't take care of himself, then you need to take care of business for him. And that's what's going on here. Just a little bunny trail I throw in for free. Verse 32. We're almost done. Uh, so they nickname him. And moving on, now all the Midianites, Amalekites, all the bad boys, they join forces. They cross over as usual. Here they come for the, their harvest. Verse 34, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, like the baptism of the Holy Spirit kind of thing. And he blew a trumpet, summoning the Abysrites and to follow him. That's his family clan. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms and also to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet them. All right? And so you've got the Holy Spirit coming upon Gideon. He morphs into a power ranger for Jesus. And Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and 18 says, you can all morph as well. It's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We talked about this in, in big detail last two judges. Uh, he blows the trumpet, 32,000 men will show up. 
And, uh, you know, it is all by, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Zechariah 4, 6. Let's finish up. Gideon says to, to God, Now, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. If there is dew only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Gideon rose up early in the morning. He squeezed the little rug out and wrung out the dew, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said, <clears throat> well, don't be angry with me. But let me make just one more request. Allow me one more test with the fleece. This time, a little harder, God. Make the fleece dry and the ground covered with dew. That night, God did that too. Only the fleece was dry. All the ground was covered with dew. There, we're done for the evening. Just a few uh, comments. Roman numeral number five, dumb and dumber. Gideon's having some cold feet issues here. Now, although Gideon has been speaking face to face with the second person of the Godhead, um, he and has seen some amazing things and a miracle, he falls prey to asking for another sign and then another sign. Now, how many of you have ever heard the term, I just put a fleece out before the Lord? Raise your hand. Yeah. Well, this is a pretty common thing that we say. How many of you think of it without thinking as a positive thing? I just put a fleece out. But you guys, come on, you're in church. You have to tell the truth, all right? <laughs> we all think of it as a positive thing. I say it all the time without thinking. Well, that, that could be our fleece before the Lord. Uh, it's a negative thing. It's not a positive thing. We mean it like, hey, a little confirmation. But really, this was a bad move. This was a move uh, that God honors because God is compassionate and he knows how frail our faith is. But we don't need to, after he's already made his point, for us to say, hey, can you do this? Let me give you a couple reasons why this was a bad move. Number one, it's dangerous to say putting a fleece before the Lord. If she calls me at 8 o'clock, then I know she's the right woman for me. <laughs> what if she calls you at 8.05? Then, well, then what do you do with that? I know a lot of Christians will say, you know, if, if the house closes in escrow, well, isn't it kind of late to be saying it, that's a fleece? And all of these things, if this happens... It's a little dangerous. There's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I need some confirmation. Can you do this? Or show me this in your word. Or I seek godly counsel. Or, There's a whole host of ways to kind of determine the Lord's will. But it's very dangerous just to start you directing things. This is my problem with this and commentators' problems with it. It puts you in the driver's seat. Uh, Lord, are you, you got a pen and paper handy? This is what I want you to do. All right. Listen, tomorrow morning when I get up, this is what I want you to do. All right. I want you to do this for me because I need you to do it. All right. So uh, I'll obey you as soon as you do this for me. Okay. No problems. All right. I'll get right on it. You just say, go and save. I will as soon as you get busy and come through and do what I need you to do. And all it's just simple. Just make the, my little sheep rug wet and the ground dry. So the Lord's like, okay, and he does it, all right? And then he figures, you know what? That's kind of the way it should be. It should be like a little wet and the threshing floor a little dry and maybe the sun came up and oh no. And so he says, uh, Lord, oh, would you mind just making it a little harder for me and just, uh, you know, but let me tell you what you need to do now. You know, it wasn't enough the first time. That's the problem, is just kind of saying, you know what, God, when you part the Jordan, we'll put our foot in. And the Lord says to them in Joshua chapter 3, no, I'm the Lord. You're the created being. I said, put your foot in, and then I'll part the waters. Oh. 
okay, we'll do that. And so you have to be careful about this fleecing the Lord. I mean, I try to ask, does it honor God? Does it advance his kingdom? Uh, is my faith going to grow? Is my character going to develop? Is this going to be a good thing spiritually for my family? Uh, is it consistent with the word of God? Uh, what do the most respected Christians that I uh, have in the sphere of my life think about this? There's lots of ways to seek God's will. And a little bit more uh, consistent and safe than just arbitrarily giving God things that he can, hoops that he can jump through. But he's so kind and loving. I love when Thomas goes to him and says, you know what, I, I, he's saying out loud, God hears him. I, I'll never believe until I touch with my own hands his wounded side and his scars. And the Lord appears to him and says, here you go, buddy, just here. Lifts up his robe, says, put your finger right there. And he says, and Thomas bows and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus did not correct him, by the way, deity of Christ scripture, John 20, 20. My Lord and my God and worships him. And the Lord pronounces a blessing. He doesn't say, oh, I'm not really God. No, my Lord and my God. But he says, you know, you're blessed right now. But blessed are those who really didn't need to do that. They're more blessed. Because they didn't waste a week, Thomas, of your life. They didn't waste Gideon two days. Two days had to pass while we're playing the let's convince Gideon game. So wasted time. Jesus says, more blessed are you who, though you cannot see, you have believed. And though you cannot see, you love him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this wonderful chapter that we got to finish and think about tonight. May you drive these truths home in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.